Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. I've decided that if I were Matt Soderlund's son, I'd be his favorite because I don't take very long to do my hair. So I feel like that's a win for me today. <laughs> um, so we are in a, kind of the second week as, as a church celebrating Lent. And uh, for, for those of you like me who have not really... Um, in any way, shape, or form participated in that before or grew up with, with any inclination towards that. Um, one of the things that I think is a good question is why, why give something up for a period of time, especially if it's not a bad thing? Why give something up as an act of faithfulness to Jesus for, for a period of time? So, you know, as, as we walk through Lent, many of us have chosen to give up something um, during the duration of Lent. And um, Luke 9, 23, Jesus says this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So really the, the denial of anything that's not wrong because sin we need to deny because it's wrong and we don't have any justifiable reason to participate in sin, but something maybe that's glorious, like Mountain Dew, for example, um, what would be the point? It's a prayerful choice of self-denial, remembering in some small way the sufferings of Christ that he has invited us into with him and following Jesus' example of humility of what I would call not grasping. In Philippians chapter two, Paul says that Jesus took the form of a man, a servant, taking his godness, not something to be grasped, that he would deny himself and become obedient to death on a cross. And so I think one of the big things for me about this practice is simply this. It's a reminder, an intentional reminder that I am doing that there are always, always, always things that get in the way of becoming like Jesus and the calling he's called me toward. And the interesting thing about that is that sin isn't the, the only thing that gets in the way of me becoming like Jesus and obeying my calling. Sometimes it's really good things that get in the way of me becoming like Jesus. And I think this is just a little tiny practice that doesn't really cost me that much to move in a direction of saying, Jesus, I know that there's some good things in my life that get in the way of me becoming like you. And so I want to practice this and be aware and to be open that there might be some things in my life that you want to remove that aren't sin, but aren't moving me toward becoming like you. And so this morning, we're going to look at a, a passage that is um, one of the traditional passages in the second week of Lent. First Thessalonians chapter four, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And this morning, we, the big thing that we want to recognize is last week we talked about Jesus as our hope 
This week, the big thing that we're emphasizing is Jesus, our King. Why should I obey Jesus? Well, because he is my King. And as much as I talk about that and try to unpack that, I still have a hard time getting my head wrapped around that because I'm just in such an environment my entire life that I don't see kings. <laughs> but but we, can st- we continue to talk through that and work through that to understand. So in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul, in writing to the people at the church in Thessalonica, it's interesting, as we'll get to it, those believers in that church lived in a very similar environment that we live in today and... I think they had a similar desire as we have here today. But Paul in chapter four says this. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Here's what I want to just point out. That as Paul is writing, he's saying something here about the Lord Jesus and, and he might as well be saying King Jesus because Lord in, the, in, in this context of where he's attributing Lord to Jesus, Paul might as well be using all of these words like ruler Jesus, commander, owner, authority, master, sovereign, King Jesus. And so he says, I mean, because you know that this came from King Jesus, your Lord. Here's what he's, he's, he's doing. He's saying, look, what I'm going to share with you is not something that's a wise thing to do or a logical thing to do or something that is a good thing coming from me or something that is a church tradition or something that, that just, you know, just, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful thing that you should consider. He's saying, no, no, this doesn't come from anyone who's excusable because it's coming from King Jesus. That's the origination of what I'm about to say. It's not coming from any other source or point. It's coming from King Jesus. And, and so you need to treat it as such. He says, it is in and through Jesus And so what comes next is not man-made. And so when questions arise pertaining to this or anything else that King Jesus says in how to live or what to do, Jesus, King Jesus has first and final say whether we acknowledge that thing or not. And so that's kind of the ground, the foundation that, that Paul has established here in this moment. And so he goes on and he says this, because this is, this is the, the thing that comes from the throne and from the authority and from the beauty and from the majesty of King Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. <laughs> this is the will of God, your sanctification. It is the will of God for you to be sanctified. And, and again, that's, that is, that is a huge, that is a, a 10,000 foot big picture of what God wants with my life, with your life. He wants you to be sanctified. Sanctification is simply to be separated out or set apart for God alone. 
developing to have the same mind as God as he is revealed in scripture. Another word for that is holiness. That it is God's will for you, for me to be holy as he is holy. And that comes from King Jesus, that you are to be holy. It's God's will for you and I to be holy. Holiness is striving to become like Jesus. Holiness is evidenced in my life by a character display of the fruit of the Spirit. Holiness, as we'll see in a moment, is actually loving the way God loves us, loving others the way God loves us. That's, that is a mark of me putting on the will of God and becoming holy, being sanctified. Holiness is a moment-by-moment choice asking yourself, whose authority will I live by? Will I please God or will I please myself? Whose pleasure do I live for? That's kind of the question that we ask in order to be moving forward in holiness. Who am I going to live by? Now, I think even with all of these things, Oftentimes, I feel like some of these biblical concepts are still a little bit hard to to wrap ourselves around and say, okay, what does that look like in my life? And so clearly, I wanted to give you a really great example, which will make all the sense in the world, and it's basically a mafia-owned Italian restaurant. Like, do I need to explain anymore? Because that just nailed it for everyone. You're like, oh, I get it now. Now I understand holiness. Mafia-owned Italian restaurant. Okay, bear with me for a second because I think this might make some sense. At least it helped me. So, so like, I, I do like Italian food. So, like, and I, and I know most of my stuff about the Italian mob from movies. So, super accurate, I'm sure. And so, if you are Italian and I'm going to describe or explain something, please don't be offended. Blame Hollywood. So, um, You've got this Italian restaurant, great restaurant in town, and, and you go in and you, know, you kind of get the, the mental image of that Italian restaurant because there's, there's always this like larger booth in the corner and there's kind of a big Italian guy sitting there. And then you see kind of near that booth are a couple guys in tracksuits. And, 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 and so you know, you, know, you know you're in a restaurant that's not like your typical McDonald's and, and you kind of see, and, and you know that like when you go in and if you like order a calzone, you know, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be the best calzone you have ever had. And, and so you're in this restaurant and, and, you, and there's people, you know, in the restaurant, there's, you know, normal people and people who look like they're, they're there's something about them that they have some kind of uh, maybe some kind of power or authority there. And in this restaurant where you eat and you pay your bill and then you leave, but there's also this, this door that's got a couple guys, a couple more guys in tracksuits standing by. And only certain people seem to be going in and out of that door. It's, it's that back room in the mob-owned Italian restaurant that is the back room where there is a whole nother set of customers doing another set of things that you're not included in because you're a law-abiding citizen and you're not part of the, the mafia club, right? And it's in that back room that these things are happening. And, and that's, the, that's the thing where it's not just about good food, it's about this whole other thing that drives the whole organization. And here's, the, here's, here's how this connects with you. 
And here's how this connects with me. The heart for God, a holy heart, has no back room, no hidden part where some other God reigns. See, what, what you see, what I present to you is the Italian restaurant of my life. But there are back rooms in my life. And it's not just sin, but it can be sin. But there's also some even good things in those back rooms where other gods rule and reign. And maybe we haven't quite given access to the Holy Spirit to clear out those rooms. Because I think in this, in this context, it's like the Holy Spirit is that special task force that comes blazing in the front of my restaurant and goes through and clears out the back room in my life and says, these things have no place here. Because there's a reality as we follow Jesus and as we become holy, there are back rooms that need to be cleared out because there's a whole nother set of customers who are doing a whole nother set of things in my life and there's a different God, small g, that reigns from that room. And, and that's what Paul is saying here, coming from the throne in King Jesus, is that it's God's will for you and I to be holy, to have no more back rooms with other gods reigning. And so that's the big picture. That's, that's what's really, really important. That's the thing that we need to walk away from with today is that there can be no back rooms hidden in our lives because it is God's will for you and I to be holy. But then Paul goes on and, and he goes from that 10,000 foot view of holiness into something that's practical holiness for the environment and the context that these believers live in. Because in Thessalonica, it was a very, very sexualized environment. There's a sex cult in, in Thessalonica. There was every possible imaginal sexual vice that was practiced and it was not kind of like behind the scenes, it was kind of in your face. And so if you lived there, you lived in that environment. And so that's where these believers lived. In fact, that's what these believers were brought out of. Many of the people in the church were formerly indulging in that lifestyle. But also, as, as Paul says early on in, in this letter, he, he recognized and he, and he says that, that, that he sees that those in the church in Thessalonica wanted to walk with God and do his will. It's interesting, one of, one of the things that we, we read in, in 2 Timothy, um, Paul is at the end of 2 Timothy, he's, he's kind of talking through these fellow workers and people he appreciates and then some hard things. And so in, in 2 Timothy, actually, he talks about this guy Demas who had, had actually contended in the faith with Paul in the proclamation of the gospel. But he says in 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, for Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So he's in love with this present world and he's, uh, 
He's abandoned me and he's gone to Thessalonica. Now, scripture doesn't give us more about what exactly that love of the world was, but Demas went to Thessalonica, so I think it's not illogical to think that there was something that was a God in his back room and he went to chase after in Thessalonica. And so that's kind of the environment that these people are living in. And so Paul starts to drill down on what is commonly conflicting with the kingdom and the family of God in their context. So God says, I want you to be holy. And then he drills down to a practical application of that holiness. See what he says in, in the latter part of verse three. He says um, that in, in, as an example, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, as an example in your context, what hits you hard in the face that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And, and so basically, Paul is saying, here's, here's the context in which you live, and here's the, the temptation that is set before you all the time. And he says, part of becoming holy Part of your sanctification is that you will not indulge in sexual immorality. And I think, I think, I think in the church, we, I think we like to make obedience accessible and obtainable by oftentimes drawing a line at the point that is maybe not quite the spirit of what God is asking for us, but at a point that we can check a box and say, I did it right. And so if you've grown up in church, then, you know, we've, we've and again, this isn't a bad thing, but we've grown up in church saying, you know what? It's a sin to engage in sex before marriage. So when you're married, if you're having sex with the person you're married to, then that's good. Which, all that is good. But I don't know that just being able to say that you've done that is really pursuing holiness and Christ-likeness in our lives. I think there's a whole lot more to it. See, what... What Paul's writing to the, the, the church is he's saying, look, everyone should control their own body and look at one another and treat one another in holiness and honor. Holiness and honor is more than just drawing a line and saying, I won't do this thing. Holy, treating and seeing people in holiness and honor is much, it's a much bigger commitment than just not doing a particular act. It's viewing others 
in a worldly way through their bodies and all that comes with that versus viewing others through the body of Christ or the family of God. Here's what's interesting about the Bible is we are described primarily as a family. We're described as God's sons and daughters. We are described as sisters and brothers, mothers and fathers. And it's, and it's interesting because if you think about functioning as a, a healthy family, because I know that not all families function healthy, but if we think about a healthy family of mom and dad and siblings, how they interact with each other or how they're called to interact with each other. They look out for one another. They, they live together in a way that they honor each other. And if this family sees Jesus as king, they motivate each other toward becoming more like Jesus. And it's, it's interesting to me, even in the church, and I don't know that I do this a whole lot, because I've always thought it was a, a little bit, I don't know, it just wasn't my thing, but, but people who, who in the church call each other and say, well, hey, brother, or hey, sister, that kind of stuff. And it's interesting because I've had people say, call me brother, but they don't remotely treat me like family. It's more of just a, a, an empty word. But what God describes in his word about the, the people of God, that we are adopted into God's family, and now we are sons and daughters, which makes us sisters and brothers. And here's one thing that is consistent in our culture, and this is a bit awkward, and I'll, I'll admit, Brett Richmond talked to me between services that, I was feeling very awkward, and I said, okay. <laughs> but I think this is really important for us to grasp this. The Bible calls us sons and daughters. We are sisters and brothers in the family of God in a very real way. And here's the thing, as sisters and brothers, I think of my family. I have a sister. I grew up in a context in the church where... I was, I was told that, you know, boys becoming men don't have a lot of self-control, that we're always gonna be going after the girls and girls have to be careful and all this stuff because we're always looking for each other for, I remember hearing in, in youth group, every date is a potential mate. That's terrifying, but, <laughs> but, but I don't know that that's a good perspective. But here's what's interesting. I've never once thought romantically about my sister. Never. And I, and I had friends in high school who wanted to date my sister. And they're like, your sister's hot. And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> like that's not a conversation anyone wants to have, right? And here's the thing. In every culture, no matter how pagan or far from God it is, if a brother 
is intimate with his sister, the whole group punishes that brother. Like that's not acceptable in any culture, no matter how sinful that culture is. And, and here's, here's the thing. We are so, I think that we are so blinded by the desire for intimacy that it, it causes us to not actually have kingdom thinking about the people around us. And we so often are trying to find the person, and so we go through person after person after person to find the right person to spend the rest of our earthly life with. And behind us, oftentimes in our own youth group or our own college group or in our own church, is a line of people of broken relationships because we went from person to person trying to find that person. Is it wrong to have a desire to, to, to find that person to spend, spend your life with? No. But is it possible that that might be distracting us from what God wants to do in and through us in our lives? It's interesting because Jesus was asked in his ministry, hey, so this person, this guy is married and numerous times and they all die, all of his wives die in heaven, who will he be married to? Basically, Jesus' response is, that's a dumb question. I mean, he doesn't say that. That's what I would have said. But Jesus says, no, 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 doesn't matter. There won't be marriage in heaven. Here's what's interesting. In the new heaven and earth, family is the default setting of our environment and our world. It's not people being married. It's people living as sisters and brothers, sons and daughters under the Father. That is God's perfect environment for us. And that's not to say, in no way am I saying marriage is bad. But I am saying this, that in the church, I think we fail to see each other the way God sees us and he has designed us to be siblings and parents in the church. And I think one of the reasons there's such a overblown focus on finding someone is that the church doesn't really act like a family. And so we have to have our own little families. And I think we miss out on the, on the incredible blessing that God wants to give us. You know, I um, mentioned this the first service, but and, I, and I'm not, I don't want to embarrass her, but whenever I see Vonda Soderlin, she gives me a kiss. And I give her a kiss. It's not romantic. It's not sexual in any way. But Vonda's one of my moms in the family of God. And I think that I'm one of Vonda's sons in the family of God. What if we actually 
saw each other in the family of God as brothers and sisters and moms and dads. I'll tell you one thing, we probably would have way less broken relationships in the church. Paul, in almost every letter, he promotes greeting one another with a holy kiss. And we could look at that and say, well, that's just, you know, Middle Eastern culture, because that still happens today. Yeah, but it's not necessarily a holy thing, because in Middle Eastern culture, even though there is greeting with a kiss, when the Taliban marched across Afghanistan most recently, they greet one another with a kiss, but they did a whole bunch of things to women across Afghanistan that feel unforgivable. So it's not just a culture that is pure enough to give kisses to each other without some kind of sexual nature behind that. And it's interesting because the Bible does put an end to certain cultural practices that are not allowed or welcome in the kingdom of God. Never is a cultural practice, does it cross over into the kingdom because, well, it's, it's, just, it's just a cultural practice. Paul actually encouraged believers to greet one another with a holy kiss. You know why? Because he recognized in the family of God, we are siblings. We are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. Now, I would be a fool to go into work tomorrow and give a female employee a kiss. <laughs> we are far from what God wants from us. But it doesn't mean that, that I can't begin adjusting how I see the people around me. It doesn't prevent me from desiring to get to a place where I have a whole bunch of spiritual moms and dads and brothers and sisters in this life. Kind of sounding like it fulfills when Jesus says, if you've given up mother, father, sister, brother, land, houses, that you will be prepaid a hundredfold even now and in the kingdom. You know what the even now is? It's this. It's that we no longer see each other as a potential romantic interest, but we see each other as brothers and sisters who are called to holiness and we honor one another. And we just let God work it out if he brings us together in a different way. And, and so, I think this is more about just avoiding sexual immorality, which is important. <laughs> but I actually think it's about a different way to live now because that's the way we're gonna live in the kingdom. Imagine what would happen to the culture and the city of Thessalonica if the people in the church there started to act that way and how it would change the environment there. Because if I saw my sister out somewhere and she was acting in a way 
should be treated in a way, I would, I would do something about it. I would have a conversation with her if she was doing something, or I would step in if it was something being done to her. And that's kind of what we're called to do in the body of Christ. You see, holiness and love are connected to each other. If I don't love others like Jesus, then I will lack holiness. Listen to what Paul writes literally right before chapter four in chapter three, verse 12. He says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Increase in love for one another and for all. The familial, godly, adopted as sons and daughters love for one another as, as we do for you so that, so that, listen to this, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Loving and living this way is a huge part of becoming holy. And so then in verse eight, kind of rounds off this thought. And he says, therefore, whoever disregards this, this call to be holy, and I believe this even, this specific call to avoid sexual immorality, but the bigger thing, to live as the family of God, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Again, the appeal to King Jesus. See, rejecting this is not disagreeing with a parent or a friend or your church or cultural laws or traditions. It's rejecting the values and ruling of King Jesus and the witness of the Holy Spirit within you. That's what rejecting this, this is. See, Here's, here's the part that, that is frustrating for me because I fail in this all the time. I fail in, in my pursuit of holiness on so many levels. I have back rooms that need to be cleared out. And it's not just in this topic, but it's all kinds of things. And here's the great news for us this morning. In our pursuit of holiness, God is merciful to us. You and I have failed in so many ways, but God is ever merciful. And here's, here's something that I want you to, I want you to, if you think, I don't know if this is true, I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to find out that it's true. But here's something that I think is so important. God's greatest glory comes not in the crushing of opposition or immediate destruction of the disobedience, he is most glorified in his mercy. You know how I know that? Because God destroying his enemies doesn't take any work on his part, no sacrifice on his part. But coming as a man, walking in this life and dying on a cross 
is the ultimate sacrifice God can make. And God is most glorified in the act of obedience of Jesus Christ in dying and raising from the dead. Therefore, God is most glorified in his mercy. God is most glorified, not when he punishes a sinner, but when he redeems a sinner. We need to get around that and get behind that. Because God is not most glorified in me when I call out someone for being bad. God is most glorified in me when I lead someone to salvation in Jesus Christ. That's where God is most glorified. I wanna read Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So by making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. Now listen to this. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God you are sisters and brothers, your sons and daughters of the household of God. That is who we are. And that is how God has called us to interact with one another. God's greatest glory is in the sacrifice of Jesus, the son for my rebellion and sin. And God has called us to holiness. We're gonna take communion this morning. And, and as we do, here's what I would ask you to consider. Jesus called us to participate together in communion so that we would remember his sacrifice and the price he paid for our sinfulness, for our sins. And you know what he did on the cross? He sacrificed himself so that when we give him access to our life, he clears out the back rooms that other gods rule and reign in our lives. And so I don't know what your back rooms are this morning. They might be connected to sexual immorality. They might be something totally different. But as we go into communion this morning, I would ask you to identify at least one of your rooms that you have in the back that has the guys guarding it and saying, no, 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 you don't get access to this. That you would hand that over to the Holy Spirit this morning and say, Spirit, I need you to come in with guns blazing and I need you to clear that room out. 
and I want Jesus to rule and reign in my back room. That's what Jesus wants. That's holiness. And, and so Jesus, that night when he was with his disciples, he took the bread and broke it and he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. Maybe even in light of today's context, this is my body that has been broken for your holiness so that you can become holy as I am holy. So let's take and eat that together. And then Jesus took the cup and said, this is, this, is my, this is my cost. This is the blood of the covenant that I'm making with you, that I will transform you, that I will forgive you, and I will make you holy. Surrender to me. Let's take the cup and drink. I wanna pray the prayer that is traditionally prayed the second Sunday of Lent because it's such a beautiful thing. And it's so applicable here. So God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who've gone astray from your ways and bring them again with repentant hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, your son, who with you and the Holy Spirit live and reign one God forever and ever. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. 